This show is brought to you in part by Art and Object. The art world is constantly changing, and fortunately, there is a great new website called Art and Object that'll help keep you up to date. You can find Art and Object on the web at www.artandobject.com. And recently, it helped to keep me up to date to a news story like the Manil Collection's new Drawing Institute. I really love drawings, so I love knowing that there's this new great place that I heard about on Art and Object that will really inspire others to keep preserving drawing and moving drawing forward as an art form. So to find this and other stories, go to Art and Object at artandobject.com, www.artandobject.com, www.artandobject.com. Com. When it comes to putting your best foot forward, there is no limit to the lengths that we humans will go to in order to present our best selves. From Instagram filters to wrinkle-erasing apps to plastic surgery and body contouring, the presentation of the perfect image is big business, and we can literally capitalize upon our appearances. That we'd want to seem as put together as possible is a natural response, because such images can relay a lot of information about ourselves and how we'd like others to perceive us. As reliable, easygoing, glamorous, well-read, edgy, or a million other adjectives, your face is your brand. And this has always been the case, which is one of the reasons that artists for hundreds of years have been into the concept of self-portraiture. Besides providing themselves with an opportunity to paint the human figure with only a mirror and art supplies needed, such self-portraits could often be used as advertisements. Look, I'm an artist, they'd scream, or look how well I can paint. But in the Renaissance, one German artist took this self-advertisement to a whole new level and created a self-portrait that raised some eyebrows, got some tongues a-wagging, and that continues to make people angry, even today. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we are continuing our season of episodes dissecting single works of art that shook their worlds, covering another painting that causes waves, even now. In this episode, Albrecht Dürer's self-portrait from the year 1500. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Albrecht Dürer, born in 1471, was a painter, draftsman, printmaker, and writer in Germany who was known today as one of the top artists of the Northern Renaissance. His woodcut prints, for example, gained him recognition and a positive reputation by the time he was in his early 20s, far earlier than most artists became notable in their lives, if they even became notable at all. To be fair, though, he did have some good things working in his favor, not the least of which was the support of his godfather, who was one of the most successful publishers in Germany something that would pay off mightily in his exposure as both a writer and a printmaker with the ability to have his works reproduced and spread far and wide. Important, too, was Dürer's training, first under the watchful eye of his father, a goldsmith, and next a three-year apprentice to the painter and printmaker Michael Wolgemuth, 
who taught Durer the ins and outs of producing woodcuts, a medium in which he would eventually excel. This, combined with his godfather's publishing experience, primed young Albrecht to really get his works out there. And get out there he did. After a few years traveling continental Europe, especially moving between Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Italy, Durer became exposed to such great art innovations and style that he was ready to begin a professional career as an independent printmaker and a highly skilled painter. By 1494, he had settled back in Nuremberg, where he married a woman named Agnes Frey and began scoring several large commissions. Contemporary documents from the time, including Durer's own letters and diaries, note the growth of his reputation and the widespread recognition that his works garnered, including significant projects for uppity-ups like the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. Throughout the course of history, Albert Durer is generally given slightly more praise for his prints than his paintings, and to a degree, Durer himself did too, partially because printmaking was more lucrative. It's easier to make a print and less time-consuming than creating an oil painting, which requires a lot of mixing of paint, of waiting for pigments to dry, and so forth. The drying aspect of printmaking, before the print plate reaches the inking stage, allows for more freedom and some improvisation, and Albert liked that. And then, of course, a painting is a one-off, a single work of art that can then typically be enjoyed by one person or one family unless it was an altarpiece for a church, for example, or a work of art meant to be shown in a public space. Prints, though, they could be made in any number of print sets and then could be widely shared and disseminated, which truly did spread the word of Albrecht Dürer's talent and availability for commissions. That all being said, Albrecht Dürer still loved to paint. Especially after his travels throughout Italy and the Netherlands in the early 1490s, Dürer found himself being pulled back to the medium over and over again, inspired by the innovations made in the medium in the early phase of the Renaissance and using it to experiment with his own ideas. In 1493, Dürer began a small series of self-portraits that would eventually consist of three separate paintings over the course of his early phase of his career. The first and second portraits were released with arguably no controversy. His final installment of his series in the year 1500 was similarly debuted to little fanfare. And so Durr carried on, with the portraits mainly being for his own use, experimenting with body positioning, colors, and brushstrokes. It was no big deal, just a self-portrait, right? Well, yes and no. 300 years later, scholars and art historians began analyzing works and making connections between Durer's 1500 self-portrait and portrait styles that had previously been reserved for one figure only. And that figure was Jesus Christ. Okay, now hang with me here. To go just into how much Durer's image is supposedly like historical representations of Jesus, I've got to describe what earlier images of Jesus did look like. Though there have been many ways of representing Christ over centuries, one of the most common and most identifiable is a style known as Christ Panocrator, or Christ the Almighty. It was an iconography that became widespread particularly in the Middle Ages and is still a very common image among Orthodox Christianity. You can see it in frescoes and mosaics throughout the Roman Empire and onward. And one of the best examples available today is in the dome of Istanbul's Hagia Sophia, itself a former Christian church turned mosque. In general, the Panocrator looks like this, a half-length image of a very frontal Christ who is typically rather Caucasian and gazing directly at the viewer and typically holding a copy of the New Testament in his left hand. 
His right hand is elevated and is usually posed in a gesture of benediction. It's a powerful image meant to connect deeply and directly on an emotional level with the viewer. And as a translation of the word panikrator from the original Greeks testifies, this is an image meant to represent Christ as almighty and all-seeing. Power is certainly the subtext here. And it makes sense, being that some scholars trace its origins from images of Greco-Roman gods, especially Zeus. So, how does Durer's self-portrait stack up against these older representations? That's coming up next, after this break. There's so much out there that interests me, and so much that I just want to learn more about. Which is why I love my subscription to The Great Courses Plus. This streaming service gives you unlimited access to learn from some of the most passionate, engaging experts around the world. The Great Courses Plus has thousands, literally thousands of videos across every different topic that you can imagine. Not just art and art history, but music, science, human nature, psychology, even learn to manage stress or to become a better cook. And what's great is you can watch anytime, anywhere. Or you can even just listen along as if you're listening to a podcast on the Great Courses Plus app. One course that I'm recommending is their video series on the fundamentals of photography. This is a great way to learn how to take better pictures and you're learning from a National Geographic photographer. You can learn everything from tips and tricks on how to get better lighting, how to better crop your photos, how to frame your photos after the fact. And no matter what type of camera you're using, this course will have something for you. And my listeners can start enjoying this and any of the wonderful courses from The Great Courses Plus right now for free. I know you are going to love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. And as one of my listeners, you can listen to The Fundamentals of Photography and any of their lectures for free by starting your free trial today by going to my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com art. So sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com art. Today's episode is also sponsored by CAA, the College Art Association. Founded in 1911, CAA is the world's largest support organization for all professionals in the arts. And right now, CAA is excited to announce that registration is open for their 107th annual conference in New York, coming up on February 13th through 16th, 2019. This conference will offer over 300 sessions focusing on a wide range of topics, including contemporary art issues like de-skilling in the age of Donald Trump and immigration and inclusion in art museums. There are also dozens of free and open-to-the-public professional development workshops, receptions, parties, and special tours at local museums, including one of my favorites, shout out to the Rubin Museum of Art, and many more tour options to choose from, like the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Frick Collection, and more. The conference will also feature hundreds of booths showcasing the latest products, programs, and books in the field at the Book and Trade Fair and Cultural and Academic Network Hall. And I can personally attest to this being one of the most fun parts of attending a CAA conference, which I have done in the past. Now, CAA is expecting over 5,000 attendees of all age ranges and from all corners of the earth and all professional levels, from students to tenured faculty to museum curators and artists. So you are not going to want to miss out on the fun, the education, and the opportunities. To learn more about CAA and its annual conference schedule, events, and registration, please visit collegeart.org. That's collegeart.org.
Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in practically any issue you can imagine, such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping problems, anger, family conflicts, self-esteem, grief, LGBT issues, and many, many more. And the great news is that you can do this all without even leaving your home. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, and anything you share is confidential. I love how convenient this is because it allows you to get your help at your own pace and on your own time. You can talk to a counselor via chat, text, phone, or video, or any combination of the above. You can do this at any time, and you can be matched with a counselor as quickly as 24 hours from time that you sign up. And if you're not happy with any given counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional fees. And best of all, BetterHelp is truly affordable. And for Art Curious listeners, you can now get 10% off your first month with discount code ARTCURIOUS. So why not get started and feel better today? Go to betterhelp.com ARTCURIOUS. And there you can simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love right now. That's betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Remember, artcurious is one word. Betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Now that we have a good idea of what these Ponocrator representations of Christ looked like, let's do a deep dive into Albert Durer's 1500 self-portrait. First and foremost, Durer himself is seated in a front-facing position, seen only from the waist up, or half-length, and very, very symmetrical. He looks directly out at us, the viewers, and we are helpless to do anything but to look into those dark eyes which are themselves glancing just slightly off to the left, or to admire his beautifully abundant golden brown hair, which flows from his shoulders in perfect ringlets. He is somber, bearded, and he holds up his right hand, nestling his long fingers into the fur-lined collar of his tunic. But those fingers are spread in such a way that it looks like something. Could it be a gesture of blessing? All in all, there is something really familiar about the style Durer has chosen to present himself in here. He flatly does look like the stereotypical Western vision of Christ throughout art history. The inscriptions on the painting are equally interesting. On the left side of the portrait, atop a plain background, Durer represents his initials, an A nestled inside a D, his typical signature. That's all well and good, but there's the possible additional link here to the commonly accepted manner of denoting time at this point in Western history. The concept of BC, or before Christ, and AD, or Anno Domini, used to denote the year after the birth of Christ. The shape of his monogram also mimics the shape of his own figure and hand in the portrait itself. But that's not all. On the right side, Durer inscribed a unique message, quote, I, Albert Durer of Nuremberg, made this image of myself in appropriate everlasting colors in my 28th year, unquote. These words are located directly next to Durer's eyes, making them impossible to ignore if the audience even ever glanced at the painting. This final self-portrait was finished just before Durer's 29th birthday. It may be of note that it's been believed over the centuries that Christ was told to have been crucified at age 29.
Okay, so it's practically impossible to precisely date the death of Jesus, though many have tried for millennia. But the generally accepted theory today is that Jesus was probably around 33 or so when he died. However, everything from 29 to 35 has been bandied about for centuries. And so a connection to Jesus at the age of 29 wasn't out of the ordinary in the Renaissance, especially in Germany. For me, these interpretations of the inscriptions are a bit of a stretch, but it is hard to know exactly, if anything, Albrecht Dürer was inferring here. Because although he left behind plenty of documentation of his works and life over the years, he never wrote a single word about his creative choices that he made in the renderings of himself. Leave it to art historians, though, to jump in with some good thoughts. Art history as a field of study truly began in the later part of the 18th century, with it hitting its stride in the middle of the 19th century. Scholars, especially in the German-speaking world, began debating the merits of art and artists that had been around for centuries. The first academic evaluation of Albert Dürer's 1500 self-portrait came out of 19th century Vienna, to be specific, from a professor and an art historian in Vienna named Moritz Thosing. In his study, Thosing claimed, quote, the commonly received opinion that he, Dürer, had the head of Christ is so far based on correct observation. But it is a hysteron proteron, which, to be correct, should be understood in the reverse, that our modern representations of Christ have Dürer's features." Unquote. To clarify what Thousing is saying here, especially by his use of the term hysteron proteron, which was totally new to me, by the way, is that the inverse of something is actually the case here. So arguing that Dürer's representation of himself as Christ was so influential to other artists that they started to model their own image of Christ after Dürer's self-portrait. To me, Felsing got the last half right. Dürer's work was so lauded enough and was long considered a German Renaissance masterpiece. So it makes some sense that artists throughout the following centuries would have looked to his portrait as a sample of how to model their own images of Christ. But as we've already seen, Dürer himself wasn't the originator of this stereotypical representation, himself having learned it from those Panacrotter images that have been around for centuries, even in Dürer's own time. The link to Christ, then, was always there, in overt and recognizable ways. And several art historians have noted that Dürer even modified his own appearance in this portrait to really drive home that Christ connection. Take his two previous portraits as examples, his 1493 portrait now at the Louvre, and his 1498 portrait housed today at the Prado. In both cases, Dürer's hair is curly and lustrous, but it's more of a reddish tone. Here, moreover, he represented himself in the traditional self-portrait style of the three-quarter view, which is the more typical way of partially turning the body towards the viewer. Think of the body positioning of the Mona Lisa, for example. So, in this portrait, Dürer specifically chose to darken his hair to brown and to face the viewer front on. He was no dummy. He specifically wanted to look like Jesus, and that made some people in the early waves of the Christian revival mad. In the 1940s, for example, Erwin Panofsky, one of the most famous art historians of all time, referred to the 1500 self-portrait as, quote, blasphemous, interpreting Dürer's image as a full-on self-alignment with Christ, an identification with God himself, or at least as godlike. Ooh. This concept did not go over well with some folks, as you can imagine. Portraying oneself as God? What arrogance! What rampant egoism! What sinfulness! There was even this crazy moment in time where viewers claimed that Dürer had painted the reflection of a cross in the dark pupils of his eyes. 
Now, I can't see them when I scan into high-res images, so take that one with a grain of salt, but you can see how an angry hysteria around this image may build. Still, there were other art historians who stepped in and took a more theoretical or symbolic view and were a bit kinder to Durer because of it. Many have argued over the years that Durer may have literally been visualizing imitatio Christi, or the concept of being a good Christian via the imitation of Christ. Naturally, this, for many, means imitating Christ in words and in deeds. But what's the best way for an artist to line up with this ideology? To present it symbolically in art, of course. And the changes in Durer's works, up to 1500, bear this out. In the years running up to the turn of the century, Durer seemed concerned with proving his technical skill in both painting and printmaking. But around 1500, when this self-portrait was made, he began infusing his work with a deeper focus on symbolism and spirituality. So much so that the meaning of some of his works, like the self-portrait and also his tour de force print, Melancholia I, from about 1514, are still the topics of hot art historical debate. So here, which one is it? Durer proclaiming himself as God, as ultimate creator? Or is he piously proclaiming himself a good Christian by literally embodying Jesus' stereotypical and traditional appearance? Obviously, since Durer himself was pretty mute on the concept behind this work, we will never truly know his intentions and the symbolism here. No matter his reason for his choice, Albert Durer's self-portrait has influenced several artists and impacted art historians alike, both past and present. His bold decisions in representing himself as a Christ-like figure have beguiled, infuriated, and inspired. Though responses vary, it's clear to see that Albert Durer wasn't focused on critical reaction. Only on showing himself the way he wanted to be shown. He was aware, deliberate, and talented enough to get away with it. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we'll discuss a truly scary and frightening painting that was possibly never meant to be seen by the public, and one that is still horrifying to view today. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and response by Valerie Gonzano. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. Follow the donate links on our website for more details, where you can find images, contact information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Lastly, if you love Art Curious and you want even more of what we do, you'll be thrilled to know that I am available for lectures, live podcast events, and any other gigs. So contact me if you'd like me to come to your museum, university, art center, or elsewhere. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, 
the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in these shocking works of art history. Before we end our episode today, I want to talk about another podcast called The Simple Sophisticate. Simple Sophisticate is a podcast inspired by the art of living, and every week Shannon, the creator of the lifestyle blog The Simply Luxurious Life, shares with listeners tips on how to live a refined life on an everyday income. From achieving your goals to preparing a memorable meal, creating a capsule wardrobe, traveling the world, francophones definitely need to tune in as Paris is a favorite destination, and just living life to the fullest without breaking the bank. If you prefer quantity over quality or just love sensible living and want a podcast that will satisfy your curiosity for life's endless questions, you have to check out The Simple Sophisticate on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Simple Sophisticate Podcast.